So this evening, <coughs> we're thinking about uh, the omnipotence of God. That's our doctrine uh, for this evening. We'll largely be in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, that Bob read for us. Um, but just as we uh, begin, uh, probably same as every time where we've been thinking about the doctrine of God, uh, we are being confronted uh, with our limited powers um, and the absolute power of God. Um, so for those of us uh, who like football and the Champions League was back this week, uh, there seemed to be a lot of chat among the pundits uh, about, you know, Ronaldo and Messi. Uh, are they still sort of the best players in the world? They've obviously been at the top of their game for the last 10 years, but the understanding is that now their powers are waning. Uh, now they're getting that bit old, older. Um, and it's a reminder that no one stays at the top forever. Um, you know, we don't need to, to go to the world of football. The strongest person that we know, whether that's physical strength, emotional strength, strength of character, um, we recognize that that's something that had to be worked at and developed. It's something that will not last. It will begin to diminish. And all of human strength has a threshold. And so whenever we are thinking about power, power in another person, we instinctively imagine there is a, a limit to that. Powerlessness for us is a shared human experience. Now, whether that's at the very small level um, of uh, the, the jam jar at the breakfast table that, that you just can't open, um, whether that goes deeper to it's the, the behavior that we just can't change, or whether, as Christians, it's the person that we we are frustrated that we cannot save them, we cannot make them listen to the truth and appreciate it, uh, we understand that powerlessness is something that we live with. And so as we think about God being omnipotent, being all-powerful, this is intended to be a source of comfort for uh, the people of God, something attractive about God. But it's something, obviously, that's going to challenge our thinking because, again, we're we're, uh, being presented with, here is our creator uh, and we are creatures and the distinction is massive um, and sometimes it's really hard for us to even begin to comprehend. So when we think about God's power, Uh, We use words like infinite. Um, The only limit that God's power has is that he cannot act against his perfect character. He cannot act against his covenant purposes and promises. He cannot act in a way that diminishes his perfect holiness. But he is infinite in power. God's power also is eternal. It is constant and it is unchanging. Unlike us where power builds up and power um, wears down. That's not the case with God. His power is eternal. And we also think about God's power being self-sufficient. All the great leaders, the great generals, the great kings of history were all reliant on another, perhaps the strength of their armies, in order to demonstrate their power and their greatness. God's power is self-sufficient. Now, God chooses... Uh, to work through uh, providence. God chooses to work through people like us. God chooses to work through the preaching of his word to achieve his purposes, but he doesn't need to. His power is self-sufficient. And God's power, uh, unlike ours, is absolute. No one and nothing opposes his will. So that's what we're thinking about today, uh, God's omnipotent power. Uh, Four places uh, that we can go to see that, four lessons that we can learn for everyday life. So um, let's begin 
um, thinking about how we see God's omnipotence in creation. Uh, so we've been reading from uh, Isaiah 45, but we could also have read Genesis 1. We could also have read Job 38 to 41. Uh, the setting um, for thinking about um, how Isaiah introduces uh, the theme of God the Creator in Isaiah 45 is interesting because Isaiah 45 is this future prophecy uh, that God is going to raise up in the future King Cyrus. King Cyrus is going to set God's people free, uh, return them uh, to the land of Israel. Um, and, and there seems to be uh, a question in the minds of God's people. So if you look at verses 9 and 10, um, it says there, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Uh, there seems to be the the implication that God's people are saying, well, if you're going to set us free, um, then surely there should be a figure like a Moses figure, a David figure, an Elijah figure. King Cyrus, a foreign king? That doesn't seem to make sense. And so at that point, um, having said, why are you questioning me? Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it, my hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. God reminds them, I am your creator. I am the one who made the earth and the heavens. I am the creator of mankind. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I have good and saving purposes for you, even when you're not able to understand how I choose to work. Verse 18 and 19 goes to the same point. This is what the Lord says. He, he created the heavens. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. So again, here's the idea of God, the creator, forming and fashioning. God filling creation, the sea, the sky, the land, including people. I have not spoken in secret. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. So as he wants, as God wants his people to trust his words, he reminds them of his power in creation. So we can look to the created world, to this universe that we live in, to give us comfort that there is an all-powerful God who is on the throne, and we can trust his word. So creation is the place where we go to see God all-powerful, God's absolute power. Go back to Genesis 1 and we discover that God created with total freedom. He spoke uh, and there was. Uh, God created without materials. God created out of nothing. And God created a world without defects. He looked and it was good. Creation comes about as God's express will. It's there in Genesis 1. They're reminded in Isaiah 45 This world that we live in is not the product of blind forces. The world is not a closed system, but rather there is a God who created it all. Job uh, 38 to 41 uh, finds God himself speaking to Job um, and uh, reminding him, in a sense, of the creator-creature distinction. Chapter after chapter. Um, um, Job having wanted to be in the presence of God and to meet with God uh, God comes and says to him well where were you at the beginning did you have the wisdom to to teach me how to make this world 
says to him, can you uh, tame the mighty creatures of the earth? A reminder to Job of God's great power and his right to do as he will. And so uh, in the Bible, we discover that creation is the place where God's power is on public display. Uh, coming in the next week or so, I think it is, um, Van Gogh Live. Uh, I think it's coming up, up from London uh, to Edinburgh for a little while. Uh, and no doubt, uh, that'll be a wonderful exhibit. Uh, maybe some of you have got tickets. Uh, Van Gogh was a wonderfully creative person, but when we think about uh, Van Gogh or any other artist, uh, they needed uh, raw materials. Uh, they were limited in their uh, scale of production God is the only creator. And the universe is his permanent exhibition. An exhibition to us of his power, his glory, his majesty. Do we have eyes to see? Do we have eyes that lead us to worship? So we see God all-powerful over creation. Isaiah 45 also reminds us that God's absolute power is shown in human history. Uh, So chapter 45, verses 1 to 7, is a word of prophecy uh, that's spoken uh, to this king, this King Cyrus of Persia. Uh, We're told that he is the Lord's anointed in verse 1. Uh, We are told that Cyrus will be summoned By God, in verse 4, the purpose of his anointing and summoning is that he will release Israel from exile. He'll restore people to the promised land so that in the nations, people know there's one true God, that praise and glory will go to God. Two perhaps surprising things about the beginning of chapter 45. One, these words are written uh, approximately 150 years before King Cyrus comes on the scene. Um, So another way we see God's absolute power is his absolute power to know the future with certainty. He doesn't suggest, well, at such and such a time, uh, maybe a king will come. No, he names him. Such is his knowledge of the future. Uh, And perhaps the other surprising thing It is that God works through Cyrus, while at the same time it becomes clear, verse 4, that Cyrus will not acknowledge God. Verse 5, I am a Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So here is the extent of God's absolute power over human history in this regard. Uh, He will anoint and summon a foreign king with no love for God, but will use that foreign king to be the means of his people's freedom. The might of an enemy empire serving the purposes of the one true God. The point being, who is like our God? Moving towards the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21, we find that emphasis again on future prediction. Again, God uh, emphasizing his uh, power, his omnipotence in the fact that he can foretell the things that come to pass. 
there is a clear connection in this chapter between God speaking, God willing, and God acting. And then in verses 20 and 21, um, he's saying, well, this is what I can do. No idol has this power. This is the extent of my rule. No emperor, no king, no person is stronger than me, comes close to me. God's will will not be denied because he has absolute power over human history. So we see that in Isaiah 45, raising up King Cyrus. Uh, We could perhaps go to uh, Daniel chapter 4 to see the flip side, to see this happen with another foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who one day was standing on on the top of his palace, looking over uh, the city, saying, I made this. Uh, This is my glory on display. And he was taken from the palace to eat grass like an animal. Failing to have the perspective and the understanding, I am not the Lord. I am not all-powerful. In a sense, it's a very human problem. Wasn't that the problem in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. Eat this and you will be like God. But Isaiah 45 reminds us, God works in history showing only he has ultimate power so that we would learn to acknowledge him and trust him. Third place where we see it, and again it's in Isaiah 45 and it's related, it's to do with redemption. Because in Isaiah 45 there's a lot of um, sense that God is in control of history, that he's working out his purposes and those purposes are saving purposes for his people. Chapters like Isaiah 45 are are great reminders when we have that question, why did God create the world? We know that God didn't need to create the world. He wasn't lacking something. He wasn't lonely because he's an eternal trinity. One answer to why did God create is that so that his people might be saved by his grace to enjoy his glory forever. And we see that emphasis coming through in this chapter. So look at verse 8. Let me read verse 8. It's a lovely image. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So God is going to describe himself as the creator. But here we have this reminder that the same God that brings life at creation is the same God who causes new life, spiritual life, to spring up and to flourish. Righteousness and salvation. In the New Testament, it's the language of new creation. It's the language of new birth. It's the language of spiritually dead people being made spiritually alive and all by God's powerful saving grace. It's a gift to his people. And we have this here, that God is all powerful in salvation. That we don't earn or merit our salvation, rather it's a gift from God who brings it to life. Again, to move towards the the end of the chapter, verses 20 to 25, you see in verse 20 um, that the 
the nations uh, are invited to gather, gather together and come, assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood who pray to gods that cannot save. Uh, so, so the nations are gathered and God is exposing the, the weakness of the idols and of idolatry. The folly of praying to gods that cannot save, that cannot help, that do not have life. And perhaps at this point, as we listen in, we're expecting judgment. Here is God gathering the nations to judge them for false worship and for not knowing the one true God. But there's a remarkable turn. It's the turn that led to Spurgeon's conversion, as we discovered this evening. Um, verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Turn to me, you who have been ignorant and living your own way and pursuing false gods. Turn to me, you who have been looking to uh, to another thing, a created thing, to find salvation and help in your time of need, uh, though it could not help. Turn to me and find me to be a saviour. In Isaiah 45, it becomes absolutely clear that there's no contest between God and the idols. Uh, The idols are torn down. They are the gods who cannot save. They are the gods who have failed and who will always fail. Verse 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. God enters into judgment against the idols uh, so that uh, God would save from the nations his own people. That they would come to recognize his reality, his strength, his salvation. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. It pictures and anticipates the global spread of God's kingdom. And we think about that since the coming of Jesus, then the sending of the Spirit, then the New Testament and the the growth of the church and the the spread of the church around the globe. There are uh, millions and millions of people who have and who are turning to God and being saved through faith in Jesus. This isn't a, a limited call to some people, to his own covenant people, Israel. This is a universal call because God's authority is universal. So the invitation is there to anyone in all the world, turn to me and to be saved. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me and the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. When Paul was writing to the Philippians, uh, he used those words to speak of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming one of us, who humbled himself further by dying uh, on the cross. But then God raised him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. 
Jesus is God's Redeemer. And we are called to bow the knee to Jesus today. So to read a chapter like Isaiah 45 is is to remind ourselves that God's power is absolute. And we can see that in creation. We can see that in his rule over history. We can see that in his working out his redeeming purposes. We cannot say God is weak or God is limited and be a true worshipper. God's power is absolute. As Abraham was told, nothing is impossible with God. As Mary was told, no word of God ever fails. There's one more place where God's ultimate power is in view. And that's why Bob read for us from 1 Corinthians 15. We need to think about the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now we know as people, we are resourceful, we have common grace, we have many abilities, can find solution to many problems, victory over many enemies, but we cannot defeat or escape death. So the resurrection comes as good news and comfort. And in the word of Paul Tripp, the resurrection is a finger that points to the omnipotence of God. Because God in Jesus did what we could never do to conquer death. Those words from Paul were so powerful, weren't they? Without resurrection. Christian faith is a pointless lie. There's no forgiveness. There's no eternal life. There is a non-saviour. We are a pathetic people. But Christ has indeed been raised. And he gave us that eyewitness list. Those people who were there to testify to the risen Lord Jesus. To give us that confidence of God's resurrection power. We speak about Christianity as a rescue religion. It's also a resurrection religion. That was the message of the the first apostles in um, Acts. We can read Acts chapter 2 and verses 23 and 24. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Paul in another letter, in the letter to the Ephesians, in the prayer that he makes for them, it would remind them that the same power that raised Jesus is the same power that's at work in all God's people. We connect the omnipotence of God with our comfort. The resurrection life that we see in Jesus is the hope of resurrection life, the certainty of resurrection life for us when our faith is in him. So resurrection power is the other great demonstration in history of God's omnipotence. And it's a demonstration that gives us the promise of new life, gives us future hope. So if those are the places where we can go and we can think about God being omnipotent, how's this going to help us for everyday life? How's this a doctrine for everyday life? Four things to consider briefly. Uh, One, Uh, The reality that we are all tempted to doubt God's power. 
And we see that throughout God's word. Abraham doubted that he could have a child. Israel doubted that God could provide food. The disciples doubted that they could have hope when they saw Jesus die on a cross. God answered all those doubts with his omnipotent power. No doubt we are aware of places in our lives where we are powerless or we feel powerless. Where do you doubt that change will come? Is it in a difficult relationship? Is it seeing someone else's spiritual apathy or your own? Is it a pattern of sin that you keep falling into and you think, I just can't change, I feel powerless? Well, this is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Is to be honest and say, well, yes, I can't change, but God, who is omnipotent, has the power to bring change. That's a reminder to look to him, not to try and fight through in our own strength, nor is it to throw our hands up and just give up. Rather, we are to look and to look again to our all-powerful God. Ephesians 1, that resurrection power within us, the reality of Jesus ruling in power for his people. He can help, we can change things, do change. And so we trust and so we pray and so we wait. Another lesson, and maybe this is especially important for us um, when we think about our children and young people, that we all need this way of looking at the world. You walk into a classroom, walk into a workplace, switch on the television. The message that we will hear, the message our children and young people will hear is that of naturalism. The world is a closed system, that there is no God. There is blind forces that are in control of everything. It's the wisdom of the age. We sang Psalm 14 this morning. That's folly. Folly to say there is no God, or that God has no influence or no care in his world. When we understand that the, the way that we think about ourselves and the way we view the world shapes our actions and responses, We see how important it is to be able to look at the world and to see that there is a God and he's a powerful God. I love the story of uh, Corrie ten Boom when she was in uh, a German prison camp with her sister Betsy and she was in a really disgusting cell. It was a part of the the prison camp that was so awful that the the guards wouldn't come near. You would think that would be a place of absolute despair and misery. Uh, But for her there was joy. Because her and her sister had freedom to, to read the Bible, to talk about their faith, to invite others who were stuck in that horrible part of the camp to, to listen and to share their faith. And so she was able to thank God for the fleas. Those fleas that kept the guards away, that gave her time with her Lord. That seeing, this is our Father's world. And He is all powerful. And He is for me. Third lesson, I think, for everyday life is that we need to understand God's power for everyday living. Again, it's to understand that that living by faith, living the Christian life, is impossible without God. We simply cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot love our neighbour as we should. We cannot show patience like we ought. We cannot avoid gossip. We 
will not always tell the truth. We will not live holy lives without the power of God. Without that power, we would fail. But we don't live the Christian life without God. Rather, he sends his spirit to dwell in us. The spirit of power. As Christians, we can say that we are a child of God and our God, our Father, he's all-powerful. That's how we can be confident of living the Christian life, not on our own strength, but in his strength. That we don't need to be ruled by anxiety because our lives are in the grip of our almighty Father. And his grace is sufficient for us. And his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Connected to that, the fourth point for how this touches on everyday life, we need to embrace dependence and to understand it's a good thing when we recognize that our God is all-powerful. I guess so much of our family life is is gearing our children, young people towards standing on their own two feet, moving towards uh, independence, making their own way in the world. But in the Christian family, we never outgrow dependence on our compassionate and powerful Father in heaven. That's a wonderful thing. In the normal Christian life, we will expect trouble. Jesus told his disciples in this world, you will have trouble. And we can expect certain things to be unresolved. We can expect times of waiting and groaning. And in those times... We need to remember the world is not ruled by blind forces. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, what will be, will be. Rather, we pray and we wait on God, our omnipotent Father. Because there is profound comfort to come from this doctrine. We will always be limited in power. But God will never be limited in power. His power remains infinite and eternal. He's ruling with wisdom. He's ruling in accordance with his saving plan. And this, our all-powerful God, he responded to our weakness and inability by sending his son Jesus to bring us salvation uh, through his atoning death on the cross. And he does that so that we can hear the wonderful words of Isaiah 45 and verse 22 as an invitation Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That verse 24 would be our testimony, that we would say of God, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Let's pray briefly to him before we sing again. Lord, our God, we praise you uh, that you are omnipotent, that there are no limits uh, to your infinite and eternal power. And we thank you that you created this world. And we thank you that you sent Jesus to be uh, the redeemer uh, for his people. We thank you for the power shown in the life of Jesus. 
We thank you for your power shown in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we pray that in our weakness, we would increasingly be looking to your strength as a source of comfort and hope for ourselves in our lives. Lord, that we wouldn't be trying to go it alone and live by our own strength. That we wouldn't have our uh, minds changed that we imagine that the things that happen in life are just random and not in your control. Uh, Rather, that we would see um, that you are almighty, eternal Father in heaven. Uh, You sit on the throne. Uh, You are ruling and reigning. And you invite us to turn to you and to be saved. You invite us to turn to you and find and enjoy eternal life. So may we turn to you even now to worship you and to enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now our (coughs) closing hymn this evening is Praise to the Lord, the Almighty the King of creation, and we will stand together to sing.